welcome to episode 389 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express, do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, Tatiana Bolton of R Street. Glenn Gerstel of the Center for Strategic International Studies and also a former NSA general counsel. We stick together. Mark McCarthy, who teaches at Georgetown Law and is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly a general counsel at the National Security Agency and also head of policy for DHS. I'm the host for today's program and the chief provocateur. I thought I would jump in. We have neglected this story, Tatiana, but it's becoming more of a law story originally was, which is the Log4j uh, story. And the FTC has jumped into the Log4j issue with both feet, I would argue, one in its mouth and the other landing on companies. That's an interesting way to put it. So Unlike anything that's happened before, the FTC has now, and granted, I'm not a lawyer, so you'll have to help on the, on the legal side of it, but FTC is now saying that after the disclosure of the massive vulnerability in Log4j and CISA's actions to try to uh, get companies to address this vulnerability, that the FTC will, will try to either fine or you know, address that address companies that don't remediate the vulnerability. Uh, it intends to use its full legal authority to pursue companies that fail to take reasonable steps to protect yeah. consumer data. Pretty hard news. Legal action in this space has never uh, been taken, certainly not by the FTC. So it's surprising that they're going down this route. But I think one of the other conversations we're going to have soon about some of the actions that the NSC has taken as well show a, a new type of a new type of effort by the Biden administration uh, I think it it signals that they're trying to take a more creative path to try and get companies to to address vulnerabilities to respond to give more information to the federal government. It's definitely an extension of what the FTC has usually done. And so it's interesting to see they're going to have a hard time doing it because obviously this will be a first time effort. Yeah. So I, I, yes and no, it's first time sort of. I uh, I agree with you that there, this was a coordinated effort and a uh, an effort by people who really want to use the regulatory and other authorities of government to, to show that they're on top of a serious security flaw. You say CISA has jumped on this. They actually told all the agencies that they're responsible for, which is all the civilian agencies, that they had to fix Log4j flaws by Christmas. They gave maybe 10 days to, to do it. And then the White House is pursuing an effort to to do something about what it perceives accurately, I think, uh, the, to be a security problem with open source in the sense that there are a lot of open source contributors whose products turn out always to be perfect. And those folks, they're doing it as a hobby. You know, X, as XKCD famously said, it's a guy in Nebraska who maintains it in his spare time is feeling a little uh, underappreciated, uh, and the rest of the internet depends on it. So the executive branch is trying to 
get their handle, get a handle on the log for, which is very clearly an open source flaw, and it is incorporated into endless numbers of open source uh, libraries. Be, you know, logging is the sort of thing everybody wants to do, and log for Java, well, why don't I just jam it in? And so that's happened, and now that we want to fix the flaw, it's really hard to do. Stuart, um, can I jump in on that? Because I think you made a, a good point about the nature of it, this open source flaw, which is, this. in some ways, this is a, a bit of a funny uh, example in which the FTC should say, you better fix this or else. Because of unlike other software bugs we've discovered where it takes a simple patch and you either do it or don't do it. In this case, because this is an open source, a flaw, an open source product that's buried somewhere in an application layer or whatever, it's going to be very difficult for companies to figure out whether they even have a problem, let alone whether they're even able to solve the problem. So for the FTC to come back. Yeah, they're going to sit around waiting for their vendors to give them the patch. And it could take weeks. In fact, what will happen is the vendors will give them multiple patches over time as various dependencies get fixed and work their way up the, the chain to the person that's supplying you. Yeah, it's a, a really hard problem to fix. This is why I think that it's been done before by the FTC and the FTC is making a really foolish mistake in the same problem. They cite the Equifax case where Equifax paid $700 million uh, up to because they had not patched a an open source bug, but the patch was available. All they had to do was install it. That is not the Log4j situation and the likelihood that people are going to be or should be if they still have Log4j problems in January, it doesn't make any sense. CISA has already admitted they're going to be patching. They're going to, you know, Christmas. They're going to have Christmas in July. They're going to still be patching in July. And that's not. I would say that's not wrong. But I also think that what the FTC has asked in issuing the notice is for companies to take reasonable steps to mitigate known vulnerabilities. And I don't think that is too far a road to cross, right? So if a company is aware of the vulnerability, they should at least be. Uh, communicating with CISA, communicating with their vendors, looking for patches and attempting to fix those that they have patches for, because there are some patches already available. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. But this is maybe not the right place to take tear your shirt off and start showing how pumped you are as a regulatory agency, because this is going to turn out to be a complicated What a great vision, problem. the FTC ripping its shirt off. <laughs> uh, shirtless. <laughs> but again, on the other side, like we can't seem to get reasonable legislation like a notification of breaches through the through Congress, right, to require things like companies talking to CISA and the DOJ about vulnerabilities they experience. So like minimum steps through the legislative process can't be had. So I think what the executive branch is doing is taking a look to see what they can do to pressure companies to make to take the to take correct yeah. corrective action. And I don't think that we should sort of I think it's important to you know, to analyze what they're doing and make sure that what they're doing is within legal bounds. I I think that however it is very important for everyone who's working on cybersecurity, be it the legislature, the the executive branch, and 
companies and consumers to all take action. It's a collective problem. And so we all need to be doing our best. And I think this is a sign of the executive branch trying to do more. Yes, but I, I think it may tell us something about this FTC that they start out threatening saying, you know, we're going to pursue companies that fail. And within two paragraphs, they're patting the open source on community on the head saying, well, we know it's part of broader structural issues, open source services. And these projects are often created and maintained by volunteers who don't have adequate resources. And we'll take that into account. The FTC kind of say that because if you're that guy in Nebraska, they have in the first paragraph threatened to use the full legal authority they have to say, you failed to patch it. You know, you didn't come home. And instead of patching it, you took care of your kids uh, and took them to, the, to a movie. And you should have fixed it first, which they could do under the Equifax uh, precedent. So they start out threatening companies and they walk back immediately to say, oh, but, you know, we'll take into account this overall dynamic as we address the root issues, uh, which is, I, I think, code for just if you're a open source maintainer, it's not you or that it's those evil big companies that are making money. But what do we do in that scenario, right? That's the person who's trying to create a more secure federal network or, you know, broader, more secure internet. Are we going to create, I mean, is the internet now a utility and we regulate it so that we don't have a dude in Nebraska running the whole system? Or, you know what I mean? Like, what if we, yeah, we, if we do we, have we, an open source system, we have to address issues somehow. I'm not saying companies are completely responsible, as I mentioned. Federal government's responsible, consumers are responsible, but you know, I don't necessarily blame the FTC for taking uh, a stronger position. I do, because I think they're schizoid. They didn't mind uh, throwing out idle threats at companies, and then they had to walk it back immediately when they were talking to the people who actually can fix the, the, the problems. So I, I do think they, they leapt into this thinking it was an easy layup, and now it's going to turn out to be a long, grinding effort. And maybe they should have been a little uh, slower off the mark. That's my suggestion. All right. Speaking of people who should be slower off the mark in that demanding action and imposing regulation, the Chinese have adopted the FTC model on steroids, Glenn. Absolutely. You know, we've now seen over the last year some headlines in newspapers that we simply would not have imagined two and three years ago after two decades of unbridled growth in China, the Gilded Age in which China became the world's factory and witnessed an explosion in consumer electronics and telecoms with extraordinary innovation and growth in their private sector and their online activities. That's now all been changed. We've seen a, a crackdown on big tech emanating from China where you wouldn't have expected it as, uh, until fairly recently. And there's a New York Times article that has a uh, one sentence in it, which I think is sort of the bumper sticker for the point, probably a bit of an exaggeration, that says, the crackdown is killing the innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurial spirit that made China a tech power in the past decade. And across the board, China in as it always does in a very integrated way. Once President Xi decides we're going to switch to a mode of common prosperity, the entire apparatus of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party gets thrown into uh, one concerted action. And it's taken about four or five forms. One is 
antitrust targeting against big companies like Alibaba and Tencent, uh, a whole new series of regulations on data and privacy patterned loosely on the European GDPR, but in some ways going beyond it, although with a big hole in it for the ability of the Chinese security apparatus to do basically whatever it wants with citizens' data. There's a new algorithm regulation coming up providing for transparency, which is exactly the kind of thing that people in Europe and the U.S. have been talking about. Absolutely. They've been curtailing overseas fundraising. Jack Ma wanted to have his ant company listed overseas and got slapped on the wrist and told you can't do that. The Chinese authorities are in a broad social engineering effort trying to cut back on just online activity, saying kids shouldn't spend time playing video games online. And and online tutoring has been greatly cut back because that's added to uh, the stress and concerns of parents. And then finally, there's the ever more zealous monitoring and curtailing of social media, which we've seen everything from involving activities in Hong Kong and Uyghur and the Uyghurs in the far west where China wants to police exactly what's being said online. So the result of all this is having an effect on both on the big companies and the little companies. The big companies, over a trillion dollars in market value has been wiped off the value of Chinese listed tech firms in just the past year. That's staggering. And we're talking about very big companies. Tencent, for example, which is the 11th largest company in the world by market cap. It's bigger than JP Morgan Chase. They've had a massive loss. The small companies too. Absolutely. The small companies too are taking a, a bath. It used to be the case that if you were had a, a, a bright future coming out of college, you maybe went into one of these startups or into these online uh, companies or gaming companies in China, which were going going full blast. And now many of them are turning away from the tech sector. It would be as if here in the United States, people, young people decided they don't want to work in Silicon Valley. There are 14,000 video gaming firms that shut down just last year alone. So the significance of this, I think, for the U.S. is it raises some interesting strategic issues for us because what this means is that President Xi doesn't particularly care too much about the explosion in consumer electronics and the ability of people to hail rides through D in China, and is instead focusing much more on strategically critical industries, semiconductors, aeronautics, and still propping up the state-owned enterprise. The fact that investor confidence overseas is, is hurt doesn't particularly bother him. Why? Because decoupling that and making sure that Chinese companies aren't vulnerable because they have a U.S. stock exchange listing is something that's probably okay with him. Yeah. So this- Plus, I, I, think, I think the Chinese demonstrated this, the sense time IPO shows that there's plenty of money even without listings in the U.S. or without U.S. investors. Uh, finding money has not been a problem for Chinese high-tech companies. It, it, Exactly correct. And the fact of the matter is that with well over a billion people, it's always going to remain the world's largest market for many things. And there's always going, there are always going to be investors who will decide to pour money into it. Where this is going, I think it's going to continue and and be uh, ratcheted up a few degrees. President Xi is coming up for his third term this November. He's pushing the common prosperity goal, which is popular within the party as well as the country due to propaganda efforts. And, and this has you say, when you say common prosperity, what you mean or what the Chinese mean is income inequity redistribution, essentially trying trying to cut down the tallest poppies and make sure that the economic benefits of the new economy also go to rural and poor people as well. 
Yes. A decade ago, the country was upset about the massive amount of corruption and the ability of the princelings to the Communist Party, children of Communist Party leaders to get away with anything. So China cracked down on that. This in some ways is the same thing, which is the average Chinese citizen has seen all these high-flying people jetting around the world, attending conferences in Davos and what you name it. And that, that economic benefit is not trickling down to the same extent that the government wants to because they're concerned about domestic uh, tranquility. And, the, and when you have people this seeing these levels of disparity, that's going to not lead to harmony. So this is very much about, yes, it's true that it has a, a benign uh, or positive uh, goal of income re redistribution and making sure that some of the wealth is spread around. Hard to argue with that. But it also, we shouldn't forget, is very much uh, about the continuation of the Chinese party control. Quick questions about uh, what this means for two uh, publics who are watching this closely. Is this going to be good news for Silicon Valley companies uh, so that they have to worry about Chinese competition? And is it going to be good for the U.S. and its industrial policy as it tries to make sure that its tech sector survives and exists in the increasing military and economic competition? Good question, and, the, and they're related, obviously. And so this, I think, is go, it plays directly into the continued forces propelling decoupling. So I think we're going to see it increasingly difficult for U.S. tech companies to penetrate the Chinese market. We've seen withdrawal after withdrawal, or in many cases, actual outright banning of U.S. social media, U.S. news media, tech companies, etc. That trend is only going to continue. There's nothing in, in it for Chinese to suddenly change course and say, we're going to be more welcoming. All the new regulations that I just referred to are very going to be very difficult for U.S. companies to comply with. So I think this is going to continue to foster the development of separate online enterprises in China versus the United States. And similarly, on the strategic competition of these larger critical industries, I think we're going to see China continue to push very strongly in these critical areas, semiconductors, aeronautics, et cetera. And that's going to continue to be a challenge for the United States as it tries to build up its capabilities in that area too to me as though Silicon Valley is already getting shut out of anything really profitable in China and anybody who's making money there is going to know how to weaponize the Chinese regulatory authorities to keep out competition. So the Chinese market is going to be closed to a lot of U.S. tech, which means that whoever grows up in that in the Chinese market is automatically going to have a whole bunch of advantages in terms of scale that can use to, to move out of China when they choose to. And the U.S. companies will never be able to undercut them in China. So they will always have to worry about people coming out of China to, to conquer the world market. Uh, so this is not particularly good for Silicon Valley and maybe not so good for the U.S. because uh, it's probably true that this means that there'll be underinvestment in certain kinds of computer consumer stuff and overinvestment in stuff that sounds like it's bound to have a an impact on the military competition. And usually, no matter how smart your government is, they get that wrong. Uh, and so you can say, well, we're listening to economic signals are going to be faster and better at developing new technologies than folks who are waiting for the latest five-year plan. But I'm just not sure how, is if you can't 
follow the economic signals into China and win that market. It means you'll always have uh, a competition and will always be at a bit of a disadvantage globally compared to the Chinese companies. I think maybe this also might lead to a different eventuality, which is uh, a push for the alliances we currently have to become stronger, especially in the ASEAN area, our region. And if that comes to pass as they start to look around and see you know, who they want to partner with, if that leads them to partner closer with the United States and you know, Western democracies, that might be good for us. I mean, I think in the short term, it is very negative, but we have to look for, I think, the silver linings in some of this and, and such as they I'm are really <laughs> optimistic but i think that there's there are possibly signs in this as glenn said that this is possibly an attempt for chinese to the chinese government to take more control and that may be a sign of strength or it could be a sign of weakness you know xi jinping has not left China very much in the last a year or two. And that has been seen as a signal by some that he's concerned about the concerned about the government and the stability of his regime. So, you know, uh, you never know when some when autocratic governments try to exert more control, get massive backlash. Yes. They, although they're learned to, to read the signals and to respond to the signals before a complete wildfire develops. Maybe they've just been lucky, but I think that ironically, all of the technologies for communication and the ability to follow those communications very closely and maybe even discipline them has given the Chinese government a lot more options to be both a little more democratic in the sense that they listen to people and a little bit more in control in the sense that they can listen to people and tell them to stop saying certain things. Okay, uh, let's move this. I, Moxie Marlin's bike is making news everywhere. I, and he's left Signal, but Signal has also announced that it's looking at incorporating a cryptocurrency into their system. So it's very successful as a, an end-to-end -end encrypted communication system that is really a widespread, has, has a widespread usage with just a handful of employees. And now, Mark, there's talk about whether Signal, which obviously has enemies in government because of end-to-end -end encryption, is exposing a new attack surface, as I think Alex Stamos called it, to regulators by adding financial transactions. And I wasn't, I, I thought it would be useful if you could just tell us why does he think that people think that might be a possibility and what's your quick assessment? So, yeah, thanks. I, I think you put your finger on some of the issues. The, there is a change in the leadership in the, uh, the organization. Signal's been living off of a $100 million loan from WhatsApp co-founder Brian Acton, and, and, and he was recently named as the interim CEO while they're looking for a new permanent head. They've had a big burst of activity in the last year because of Facebook's announcement that they were going to share WhatsApp data with the parent company. And now it says it's got 100 million devices that can use the messaging app. It uses, as you say, the end and encryption protocol, but it's not as popular as Telegram. It's getting increasingly popular in countries such as Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. 
And this new thing is is really an attempt to combine payment with the messaging service. Uh, since November, it's made available to its users the capacity to pay for services with the anonymous cryptocurrency MobileCoin. And MobileCoins, it's even more privacy protective than Bitcoin. Bitcoin allows some tracing of, of transactions and, and MobileCoin avoids that. It uses various techniques that hide the amount of the payments involved and, and make them much harder to trace by mixing them in certain ways. And the idea is that by offering MobileCoin within Signal is that, for example, you can not only have your private conversation with your therapist on Signal, but now you can pay for that service through Signal in a way that no one else will know about. So it gives you privacy in both areas. Now, it's not clear what this means for U.S. users yet. I mean, within the Signal app, you can get uh, access your MobileCoin wallet, but you have to be able to acquire MobileCoin to begin with. And, and right now you can't in the United States. Now, the, the head of MobileCoin says that he's got arrangements that he's just signed with payment processors and the trading platforms that will allow the U.S. residents to buy MobileCoin sometime in the first quarter of this year. So this is a really, for the U.S. users at least, it's a future-oriented issue. And commentators are really worried that this integration of the privacy currency and the private messenger service will put pressure on the end-to-end -end encryption. As many of the listeners know, banking regulators have been tightening the screws on these private currencies. The proposed financial rules would require more companies in the cryptocurrency space to collect identifying information. And the, in the Build Back Better bill, which is now defunct apparently, it had a requirement for, for some of the companies to report identifying information to the IRS. As you, as you point out, Alex Stamos says that this increases the legal attack service by combining this money transfer function with the messaging service. But he also points out that there's the possibility of real life harms here. I mean, extortion, drug sales, child sexual abuse material, and, and that will harm the company in the court, in legislatures, in, in the face of public opinion. Now, of course, no, no regulator has said anything about this yet. So it's not clear where this concern is coming from. A reasonable guess is that it sources defenders of end-to-end -end encryption who really have nothing against private currencies, but they have a priority in defending encryption. And so this spate of stories suggest, the, you know, the publicity is designed to push Signal to rethink its plans or, or maybe to take such steps uh, as yeah, uh, KYC rules, know your customer rules that could ease the regulatory pressure on end-to-end -end encryption. We'll, we'll have to see how this plays out in the next month okay. or so and, and whether Signal uh, does uh, change its, its direction. So first, first, Signal has to decide exactly how it's going to do this, and then we get to watch whether the regulators decide to unload on the attack surface that's been opened up. Okay, I, and, and I want to talk later about the Facebook lawsuit, because I think it ties to, to Signal's illegal exposure. But first, to go back to one more Chinese case, uh, Gun, there was a story in Defense One about a desk phone exposure of 
the vulnerabilities. What did Defense One tell? Well, there's a story out about a very uh, fairly common desk phone made by a company called Yealink, which isn't as well known in uh, as Huawei, but is a significant Chinese telecom manufacturer. It has close ties to the, as one would expect, to the Chinese Communist Party and the state. Their phone is is found in the United States in small businesses, apparently in the federal government and state government. Verizon has a an arrangement to sell you one of one of one of the uh, Yay Link phones. It's a voice over IP phone. And, this, and the way this is often used by businesses, is, as well as governments, is to plug in your laptop or PC into the phone. And therefore, you get an advantage of being able to make phone calls from your laptop or from your PC. But of course, that's connecting all of your, potentially, your web traffic and whatever you do on your PC or laptop to the phone that operates as the, as it affects the switch to the local area network, your company's network. So what's the problem with this? Well, there's a company called Chain Security that uh, looks at uh, the vulnerabilities in software and hardware, and they examined the uh, Yealing phone. They took it apart, literally and figuratively, and they discovered a couple of interesting things. In increasing order of significance, one, they found that the terms of service that you have to sign to use the thing say you have to accept Chinese law. Sounds like a good idea to me. Uh, second, they discovered that the phone doesn't use digital certificates to confirm the authenticity of firmware upgrades. And of course, every time an upgrade is sent, the phone's supposed to check to make sure that it's the real thing. But if it's possible for someone to easily spoof it, well, you could see they could get into uh, not only your phone, but more importantly, because it's connected to your PC and potentially into your PC and from there into a network. So that sounds like a really big open. Third, they discovered that the phone exchanges encrypted messages, which they couldn't look at, with a connection in the Alibaba cloud multiple times a day. We don't know what those messages are. Presumably, they're just things that say, hi, I'm here and I'm still okay, to back to the systems administrator, but who knows? And then finally, and maybe this is another good idea, but it sounds like the, the administrator's platform that controls this particular phone allows the secret recording of calls and tracking everything you do on your website when you're looking using a browser on your PC that's connected to the phone. So, worst case analysis, a Chinese administrator who's receiving these encrypted messages uh, several times a day could instruct the phone to record phone calls and to track what's going on in your website and send it all back in encrypted form to the Alibaba cloud. So that doesn't sound like such a great idea, and the Commerce Department is looking into it as a result of a request from Senator Van Hollen. All right. Well, we'll hear, we're clearly going to hear more about this one, I suspect. I, I want to move us along. I, Mark, the, the German antitrust authorities invoked something that has been in the works for a while, basically saying that Google is so important that to platform that it needs special antitrust scrutiny. And, you know, there's a law that allows the, the German government to do that scrutiny, yeah. but first they have to identify companies that are just too important in terms of commercial transactions to be allowed to compete in the same way that everybody else is. And, and Google is the first one to get tagged in this way, right? I don't think it's the first one, but it's the one that was just tagged this nope. this week. The buzzword in the new German law is that they investigate whether a company has a position of paramount significance across markets. And when they make a finding like that, 
it enables the competition authority to take special measures to prevent anti-competitive harms. And it's um, essentially saying, are you a gatekeeper for a lot of people? For a lot of different competitors. Areas, yeah. That's right. And the, across markets is the key idea. It's not so much paramount significance within a market. It's a, a paramount significance across markets. And uh, once you make that decision, then you've got special powers that last five years and you can supervise the company involved to make sure that it doesn't abuse its uh, paramount position of paramount significance. So what does this mean for Google? It means you look at the range of its digital services and they span several markets. It, 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 they, they go across search, YouTube, maps, Android smartphone operating systems, the Chrome browser that we're using right now for this service. And the key point in all of those different markets is whether Google's collection and use of data, user, user data is appropriate. And of course, this is an area that's traditionally under the jurisdiction of Europe's data protection authorities that, who enforce the general data protection regulation. But Andreas Mundt, the, the head of the antitrust group in Germany says, look, Google's business model is fundamentally based on the processing uh, of the data of its users. He says, we're going to look closely into the terms on which user data is processed. The central question, he says, is whether consumers have sufficient choice regarding the use of their data by Google. Now, this does sound an awful lot like a data protection issue, but it's also a competition issue. And it follows on a earlier case involving Facebook in 2019, when the German competition authorities asked whether Facebook users could refuse third-party tracking of its movements on outside websites and on other Facebook properties. And the, the authority said that choice was insufficient. And so the, the case is now in front of the European Court of Justice to see whether they exceeded their authority. It looks as though they're going to do something very much like that with respect to Google, whether users can refuse to allow Facebook to combine data across its many different services to provide a, a complex profile of Google users. We'll see how far they get with that. They seem to have plenty of authority to take steps in this area. And they've got five years in which to to make a, a case. A, a side note, I mean, the, this whole issue of taking action against tech companies is global. We heard from Glenn earlier how China's doing. Also in the news this week was moved by Korea, which is beginning to enforce its uh, new law that bars Apple and Google from requiring app developers to use their proprietary payment system. It's that they're, that they're, they're gatekeepers. So very similar to the German approach. Very similar to the Google approach, Google has submitted its proposal to comply with the regulation. And this week, Apple did the same. We don't know the details of how that will work out yet, but the regulator has to approve it. But the Europe and the UK are looking at similar restraints, and there's a similar issue in the United States. You know, that private lawsuit between Apple and Epic turned on exactly the same question, and this legislation pending in the Senate right now that would open the app and take a step similar to what the South Korea regulator has already, has already done. If I may, uh, so I feel like this speaks to two things. One, that all of these actions, that there's so little sort of structure, legal, you know, legal structure around the internet broadly, that we've come to a point, it seems like, that people are identifying 
some specific and some completely non-specific harms and trying to fix it through my second point non-specific regulation. So they're trying to fix issues with where they find issues of content moderation or data theft or data leaks with antitrust legislation, which I think is the wrong way to go. I think all of this speaks to, as well, the need for federal data security, data privacy legislation, because I think that is part of the key and the underlying problem that we have. Our data is not particularly secure. There's no there's no sort of rules around it and no regulations surrounding it. And I think we can find sort of reasonable comment recommendations for that, as opposed to trying to sort of break up broadly companies for what? I mean, being quote gatekeepers. I don't even know what that means. I, 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 I don't agree with you. First, I, I don't think that an American data protection law would change anything about Apple's situation in South Korea or Google's situation in Germany. They're not interested in our data protection law. They've written us off as a pri privacy unfriendly jurisdiction years ago, and they're not going to take any advice about how to regulate in that area. And in the US, I, you know, the people who are mad at uh, uh, Silicon Valley on the right are not mad particularly about privacy, although the privacy is a stick you can beat Silicon Valley with. But on the right, they're, they're mad about uh, a suppression of uh, speech by, by right-wing figures. And you'd have to write a complete, you, you're not going to solve that with data protection law, and you probably can't solve an antitrust law. So what we, I think what we have is everybody's mad at them, and they're looking for a stick to beat with them with today, not uh, uh, one that they can write and beat them with in a year and a half. A and in any event, they can't get it through because different people want to beat different companies for different reasons. And so I, I, I think we're in a situation where companies are being attacked and this gatekeeper notion is being invoked in part because once you call somebody a gatekeeper under antitrust law, as it's generally understood, you get to write a, a very specific private regulatory regime just for them, just for that company. So Google is going to end up with antitrust rules that don't apply to anybody else, which is sweet if you're the regulator, because then you don't even have to worry about whether somebody else might disagree with the rules you're writing because you say, don't worry, won't apply to you. Don't, Apple won't apply to you. You're not a gatekeeper. Only Google will have to do this. Yeah, but Stuart, um, let, let me jump in there because that's exactly what's changing in Europe and the UK right now. Okay. They're attempting through the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Markets Unit in, in the UK to set up a, a classification. Maybe the, the term gatekeeper is the right one. But they treat a whole range of companies as gatekeepers, all of whom meet certain classes. And then have some general principles that say, if you're a gatekeeper, there are certain things you can't do. There's That's certain right. kinds That's of self-preferencing right. you can't and do. It, it, when you bring an individual case, all you can do is take action against the company you bring the case against. But if you pass these kind of ex-ante regulations, then you can take action against a whole class of companies who meet the definition of gatekeeper. And that's where both the European Union and the United Kingdom are going. Sounds and look, I, I resonate to the gatekeeper notion because it's clear that's what's going on here. But I wonder whether antitrust gatekeeper approaches are right. But so I interrupted you. I'm hoping you are ready to move to this really interesting uh, article from 
borderless and beyond, which was, it, it, it's it's about Ann Neuberger, former NSA official, who's now a deputy national security advisor in the White House, talking about cybersecurity policy. And it's a well-researched article that for some reason keeps flipping her gender. I, and I'm pretty sure that's not at her request. So I don't know how seriously to take this article. Did you get a sense of whether it was actually a true piece of reporting? I think that it's so, you know, I'm sure the, the pronouns were just put in the wrong order and probably just some bad editing right there. But I, the story is interesting to me because I think that it, we've gone from a place of no, very little cyber leadership, right? After the firing of the cyber director at the White House under Trump. And then now to two positions and with two very strong leaders in those posts, which I think inevitably sets us up for uh, a fight. Senator Warner is quoted in the article saying that, you know, he's confused about, you know, uh, why he hasn't heard from Ann Neuberger about other cybersecurity incidents or issues and wants to sort of clarify the, you know, the leadership chain in the White House on cybersecurity. And I think, it, you know, it's up to Biden to clarify his uh, leadership chain uh, on this issue area. And it's an incredibly important area uh, to do that for. I think what we tried to do at the commission was, the Solarium Commission, was advocate for strong leadership in the area because we felt it was incredibly important to the overall structure. But right now, the two centers of power are duking it out. And I've got to say, I think, you know, from my seat, the position that is required by law and has recently been passed by Congress with fairly good bipartisan support is probably going to win out. So yeah, I, that obviously <clears throat> the, the Solar, Solarian Commission wanted to create Chris Inglis's job and sold that. And it became because anything that the Senate gets to vote on requires Senate confirmation. Any serious position is going to have a Senate confirmation requirement. I was much more skeptical of that recommendation of yours, because I think if you work in the White House and you are Senate confirmed, there's always going to be a question of whether you have some lingering sense of obligation to people in the Senate. And in the White House, you cannot have any lingering sense of obligation to anybody except the president. And so it's always a, it's a disadvantage you drag to every single sit room meeting that you might have dual loyalties. So I think that's the source of this. But it is a the report says there's a lot of tension and you're suggesting that, yeah, and Chris ought to win. Right. We looked at a number of different organizations within the White House to see whether the position for MCD should be Senate confirmed. And, you know, we modeled it after USTR, which is, in fact, Senate confirmed and still has the trust of the president. So I think a lot of this is a relationships game. And I, I hear your point that it does or can have a detrimental effect on the trust between a president and his advisor. But the way in which the description for the NCD is written identifies Chris Inglis as the national cyber director, as the president's primary cyber advisor. And so I think given that that has passed and unlikely to be revoked, it's unlikely that the position of Ann Neuberger's position as the cyber director in the White House or the uh, whatever the official position is will sort of last in perpetuity. Now, I have great 
for her, and I think she has done. Uh, I, I appreciate her her way in which she gets things done. I think often women in power, in fact, the article I think is a little bit gendered because of the way in which it reports on the way Anne acts in power, which is typical of how men in power act. And I think only women kind of get called out for being uh, pushy or bowling people over or stepping on toes. I don't think you're going to find a lot of power players in Washington that don't act that way. But I think actually, you know, we'll see what happens. And Chris Singlitz is is a is an is in a really good position because I think he is gaining a strong staff. They're going up to 70 people, and I think they're already at about 20 or 30. Where Ann Neuberger does not have nearly that large a staff, and so that's another additional benefit for the NCD as well as the connection they're going to have with OMB. So with their budget, some of their budget authorities. In, inevitably, I think it's just the fact that it's written into law that will that'll determine this. Could be. I, uh, you know, my experience in government is that the minute you say I should do this because the law says I get to do it, you're already losing. Our agencies, for example, battle for authorities all the time. And yes, when you're written in law, when you have an authority, that gives you the uh, imprimatur and allows you to do work. Part of the reason, for example, that CISA had such trouble getting federal agencies to do what it wanted before some of the recent advent of their authorities under the NDAA uh, a couple of years ago with, with some of our recommendations because I, they didn't have those authorities listed in law. So I'm not saying that the NCD is just saying that is the reason they should be the leader. But I think that will inevitably determine which position lasts. Yeah. So I uh, like like you, I really like and respect both of them. Chris Inglis is just has been a brilliant contributor to cybersecurity and national security matters. Uh, Anne is terrific and has gotten a lot done that I never thought could be done. There was one line in the article that was news to me because I never actually worked directly uh, with either of them, but gave me a new respect for Anne. It says Newberger has a particular tendency to class with clash with lawyers, say people who work with her, an attribute some of her NSA colleagues admired. If she thought this is what we have to do, she would push and try to do it, one of them said. And the people who opposed it, sometimes she just knocked them down. And so uh, I'm going to ask Glenn, who was an NSA lawyer while Anne was there, how accurate this is. Interesting. Stuart, I had a feeling you were going to ask me that question. Um, so let me start off by saying, like that that Mandarin Oriental ad, I'm a fan. Uh, I'm a fan of, of Anne's. I worked very closely with her for five years when, when I was at the, the National Security Agency. You know, my feeling on this is that Anne, as we've all said, is a very talented, strong person. And I think you have to look at the roles she's been given. When she was at NSA, she had responsibilities initially for risk management and then helping on the dealing with Russia's efforts against disinformation in the elections. And then most importantly and significantly, standing up an entirely new cybersecurity operation within the National Security Agency. All of these roles were new required blazing a path, blazing a trail, and no surprise that anybody who does that is going to need to be forceful. My feeling is that in the case of the lawyers, you know, in the private sector, which is where Anne came from, uh, the private sector lawyer's duty to, to greatly oversimplify it is to try to assist the client to get where they want and make sure it's not illegal. By contrast, 
The lawyer in a government agency must start first and foremost with the question of, is this particular activity authorized or not? We have a limited government, and you can't do anything unless it's authorized either by statute or regulation. So every time Anne in this trailblazing area wants to do something, some lawyer needs to come and say, wait a second, we need to make sure there's express authority. And as you would expect, in the cyber area, which is a new area for the federal government in effect, there aren't all that clear area clear lines of authority. So no surprise that Anne spent lots of time with me and other lawyers trying to work through things. But having said that, I found her always terrific to work with, very professional, and she helped get the job done, which was what was required in a completely lawful manner. So I have no problems with any of that. Yeah, I'm guessing that just going to you and talking to you about it is going to be perceived by some of the lawyers in the general counsel's office as her rolling over them. I uh, and so there's it, the question is uh, at what level does she exercise um, her authority and uh, press her case? And I, I think given the job she had, the idea that she would go to the general counsel and press her case there makes a lot of sense. But I'm sure it left a few bruises. I think this is just one of these press reports where it, you can find an exciting quote that makes more of something than there really is. And I, I well, just think that's all I think about it. Yeah, the, the guy who said it has been out of the agency for a long time. All right. Let's. I, I, I know Tatiana's got to leave, so I we will soldier on without her on the last few cases that we want to discuss. Facebook meta has been sued for a its alleged role in you know a really shocking right wing assassination by uh, a boogaloo boy who just basically found a like minded person drive him by a federal office and he gunned down the the FPS the Federal Protective Service guy who was guarding the building and killed him I, and Facebook is being sued by the right. surviving sister claiming that Facebook is responsible for the death. Mark, plausible? Well, not terribly, but we'll see how far it gets. I mean, the two were linked through Facebook, and the complaint uh, from the sister of the slain argues that Facebook had a duty of care to operate Facebook in a safe manner, and, or at least a duty of care to the law enforcement officers who might be put at risk by the rise of the Boogaloo movement. And the, the complaint continues, it breached this duty of care by allowing the growth of the Boogaloo movement on Facebook, and in particular by introducing the two to each other. There was an additional duty of care that the, the, the complaint alleges, which is that they, they were supposed to be have a duty of care to design their recommendation algorithms properly. And it breached this duty of care, sort of this design duty of care by designing its algorithms to introduce extremists to each other, uh, asking damages of at least $25,000. Now, it's not at all clear that Facebook has these duties of care to its, its users and to the public to operate the platform safely. The plaintiff is going to have to show that it had this duty in particular to the slain officer. And, you know, we'll see what happens if it ever gets... Yeah. To, My to guess court. is. But, but I, I don't think it gets there because Section 230 stands in its way. And I think yeah. Facebook is going to argue that the case should be dismissed on those grounds. 230, you remember, says that the, 
the companies are not responsible for the, the postings of their users. And oddly, the complaint doesn't even mention Section 230. There's a suggestion. Well, if, you were, if you were the plaintiff? Right? Well, know. not, but it's sort of an obvious response. So say we're going to have an argument that should have said something. The press reports suggest that uh, the plaintiffs might argue that uh, Facebook loses the Section 230 immunity because it had actual knowledge of the extremist danger. And they, they cite, the complaint does cite the whistleblower Frances Haugen and her revelations as proof of this knowledge. But it's not clear how this actual knowledge claim helps at all. I mean, Section 230 doesn't operate on a knowledge basis the way the Digital Millennium Copyright Act does. Maybe it should. Well, what, what, what about arguing, we're not suing you for what you allowed them to say. It's the fact that you introduced them uh, right. and they then decided to do something, right. to say and, something. And Facebook has an argument there, and it's a pretty good one. They'll argue that Section 230 immunity extends to the operation of its algorithms. And mm -hmm. in an earlier case, Force versus Facebook, the court upheld exactly that, uh, that point. In that earlier case, there were some U.S. citizens who were victims of an attack by Hamas, and they alleged that Facebook was responsible because it linked the perpetrators. But the court ruled that by introducing the attackers, Facebook was acting as a publisher, and in that capacity, it enjoyed a Section 230 immunity. I, I think that's wrong. Probably though, find that's, that's exactly the same argument in this case, so I don't think it gets too far. I, I think that's I think that's the the problem is that the precedent they're citing was from the the hippie age for the internet when Section two thirty protected everything because the internet is just so cool. Now this is, uh, this is much more recent than that. This is in the last okay. couple of years. All right. Uh, I but, I just I think the there's been overreading of two thirty and to say you know introducing people so they can conspire on terrorist acts is what publishers do is a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, but there it is. So this might increase some pressure on Congress to change Section 230, and maybe they'll move ahead and say exactly what you're suggesting, that algorithms are not covered under Section 230. That's one thing that they could say. But we're talking about the law as it currently exists, and as it currently exists, despite a very strong dissent in that Force versus Facebook case, it extends immunity to the operation of algorithms. So we'll see where it goes. With Congress reacting to this, there may be some movement to change 230 to make companies responsible for what their algorithms do. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's try to move through three or four of these reasonably quickly. Uh, Glenn, one more uh, use of China regulatory authority, this time Walmart's on the receiving end of it. Uh, uh, what happened there? Stuart, this one little case encapsulates uh, sort of almost everything we were talking about earlier on in the program. Just the very quick facts, because uh, they're real simple, which is in mid-December, the Communist Party's Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, what a wonderful title for an organization, uh, warned Walmart that there would be a consumer retaliation if the store, as was apparently alleged in Chinese social media, was removing from its shelves products that were sourced in Shenzhen, the province where it is the subject of the Uyghur crackdown. Walmart and uh, Sam's Clubs have uh, 434 stores in China. They're, they are one of the retail successes in China. And apparently, uh, it's not clear whether they really were removing those products or not. Sounds like they might well be. And then the anti-corruption agency specifically said that Sam's Club was guilty of stupidity and short-sightedness. Just think of a U.S. regulator saying that and warned that there'd be retaliation. And guess what? Just days later, 
China Quality News, which is a wonderfully titled news site supported by the State Administration for Market Regulation, their antitrust regulators, announced that the company, Sam's Club, was being charged with, with cyber violations and told it had a number of days in which to fix various, 19 various cyber violations and deficiencies in its online operations and elsewhere. And of course, the timing of this is hard to believe that it, it's, uh, it's just coincidental. Yeah. So it, uh, it, and this, of course, is the problem that cybersecurity laws, privacy laws, you can almost always file, find a violation. This is what government regulators like about them. Uh, and it allows them to, uh, to punish the people who deserve to be punished. And the Chinese decided, I suspect, that Walmart just didn't deserve to be published, to be punished, as Intel has been for similarly saying we can't source from Xinjiang. So, uh, yeah, we will continue to see this sort of thing. I want to move quickly through the next story, because I'm not sure what there is to say, except that Lloyd's of London has said you know, cyber uh, insurance doesn't usually cover you for damage done during war. And we've just noticed that cyber attacks are often carried out by governments to achieve government purposes. And don't expect us to cover you when that happens, which is going to be a big problem because you've got to then attribute an attack that otherwise looks just like every other attack and suddenly say, oh, yeah, but I, maybe there was a motive there to send a signal by cutting off a natural gas uh, or gasoline shipments to the east coast of the United States just to show we could. It, this isn't entirely a surprise. It just it is, I think, Lloyd's saying we are going to be pretty hard-nosed about this. And if that's bad for the cyber insurance market, well, we're not making any money there. Exactly right. I mean, two two quick paint things. One, this is going to be really hard for Lloyd's to prove or alternatively for their insured customers to prove one way or the other, because it's very often there's definitive attribution to a nation state. You can see lots of litigation growing, going out of this, lots of unequal results in different cases. And so... This is all part of the effort on the part of the uh, insurance industry to uh, take a step back from the blanket coverage that they've had in what was otherwise, uh, until several years ago, a rather profitable area, now turning disastrously difficult for insurance companies. And that leads to the second point, which is this is really just emblematic of what we're going to see as a wholesale change in the cybersecurity insurance area. This The current model is not sustainable. We need insurance companies to provide insurance. We need insurance companies to help cause companies, their insureds, to to take the right actions. Just the same way before you get fire insurance, an insurance company comes and says, make sure you have sprinklers and fire extinguishers. We yep. need the same thing in the cybersecurity area, but this whole area is going to be transformed. Yeah. So the one last story I wanted to cover, and I apologize, I missed this when I was doing the first roundup of stories over the winter break. But the Northern District of California U.S. Attorney's Office has gone back to a case that we covered long ago, which was a criminal prosecution of Uber's former chief security officer and general counsel because of a case in which the company received a notice saying we've compromised a bunch of your data about including your driver data uh, and you should pay us. It was ransomware attack, but it clearly was in that vein. And the chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, ended up negotiating with 
the hackers and saying, hey, look, we can pay you a bounty for finding a security hole, but you have to tell us you didn't distribute the data and that you're destroying it. And he really stretched, I think, the notion that certainly it wasn't consistent with the bounty program that they had up to then. Uh, and if you look at it one way, it's a bounty payment and a creative use of bounty payments. And if you look at it from the other point of view, it's paying off people so that you don't have to report a, a breach. And because Uber was already under investigation for breaches, the government said that was a failure to disclose and an obstruction of the FTC's investigation. And they brought a criminal case against DeSullivan. What's happened over Christmas and was just announced after New Year's is the um, U.S. attorney added a bunch of counts of wire fraud on the theory that, and, and this is like 18 months after they brought the case, on the theory that by withholding this information from drivers, Sullivan was engaged in, I guess, material omission of facts constituting fraud. I, you know, I understood why they brought the first set of charges. I think this is nuts. Uh, it's a, with the wire fraud uh, statute stretched a lot by federal prosecutors. This is, it's going to be hard to show that there was some material that people relied on this material omission. It doesn't feel like fraud. It feels like a, an aggressive of the bounty program. And you kind of wonder why they would come this, you know, he's actually still working and, and obviously he's going to defend this case. I suspect they're still trying to get him to flip on Travis Kalanick. If I was the defense, if I was the defense lawyer, I'd ask myself, why is it that the prosecutors went back to the grand jury to get a superseding indictment? Usually that's because there are new facts that came up during the case. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound like it was the case here. So yeah. that would lead me to think, gosh, maybe they're worried that the charges they've already thrown at me aren't going to stick and they need something else. That's where I would go to first. That's interesting. So that that's the other possibility. Either they are trying to squeeze him because he isn't responding to the first squeeze to flip him, or they are afraid they're not going to win the uh, first case. But this is so, to use a, a non-judgmental term, such a creative approach to the Wire Fraud Act that I'm not sure they make them, they, they guarantee against an appeal by adding this in. It's just a, it's very puzzling. And here's my last observation about it. Um, general counsels have to decide all the time whether when they have a breach, they should call the FBI in and have them sit at the table to talk about what they're going to do to handle it. And up to now, the FBI has worked pretty hard to say, look, you, your issues with regulators are your issues with the regulators. We're here to deal with criminal matters. And so don't worry about calling us in. And they've tried to deliver that message without being quite as blunt as we're not going to turn you in. We're not going to turn it into an investigation of you. But now everybody who brings the FBI and has them sit at the table is going to have the FBI sitting at the table when somebody says, hey, shouldn't we notify people about this now? And somebody else is going to say, oh, not yet. You know, I haven't reached the chairman of the board. I'd like to see some more information. There's a it could be a serious discussion about that and then a decision by the um, powers that be not to disclose maybe for a week 
Well, if the FBI knows that, they now have evidence of what arguably is wire fraud. Uh, and you invited them to the table. I, this is so bad for the FBI's future participation in breach cases that I think that Maine Justice should should be calling uh, the Northern District of California and saying, really? Uh, Tatiana, Glenn, Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, to the audience, if you've got questions or feedback, send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 389 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.